The scripture for today's sermon is Mark 9, verses 30 through 50. The word of God speaks to us like this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to him, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued which one, with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not him, not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eyes cause you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of God to us. Well, a rowdy group as always. I love it. I love it. I know you can tell by the passage that was just read, it's going to be a chipper sermon. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Hey, my name is Chad Kinser. I've had a chance to meet you. Uh, I serve as one of our pastors, and this passage of scripture is going to cause us to travel upstream today. And so before we jump in, let's pray. You pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll get to work. Sound good? Father, we ask for your help today. We ask... Um, you would teach us today, comfort us, form us, confront us. Um, I'm asking particularly for an expanded capacity to submit to you. Um, give me more room in my heart, in our hearts, to, to say yes to Jesus. And so Jesus, we confess again with your church all over the globe today, what the church has confessed since the beginning that you are Lord and against your church the gates of hell will not prevail. And so we offer this prayer as your people and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, maybe you've heard th this phrase before and maybe, uh, maybe it was said to you even when you were uh, young maybe by your parents. But you, you can know someone by the company they keep. You can know about someone, you can know someone by the company they keep. That, that, that statement is well and good. It, it, it means well, and I, and I think it's true so far as it goes, and it's good for us. But then when it comes to Jesus, that statement gets a little bit bizarre, doesn't it? Because um, he was called a drunkard and a glutton. 
not because he was drunk and indulgent, but because those who he hung out with. That's the company he kept. There was an accusation brought against Jesus by his greatest critics, an indictment against him, that he was a friend of sinners. That was the company that he kept. And there's never been a greater indictment that meant such good news for us. Amen? He's a friend of sinners. But there's a couple of things that are happening as we continue to work through this gospel of Mark. If you've got a Bible, open to the passage we read in Mark chapter 9. There's a couple of things that are happening to this point in the narrative. Mark is trying to answer the question, number one, who is Jesus and what has he come to do? Who is this Jesus and what has he come to do? But the second thing that's happening sort of as a subplot in this book is who is Jesus hanging out with? What is the company that he's keeping? How is he talking to them? How is he dealing with them? What is, he, what is the tenor of those kinds of conversations? And the group of people that Jesus is spending most of his time with are the disciples, those 12 that he called to follow him. And by this point, they are hardly anybody worth bragging about. They're, but this is the group Jesus has called. This is the group Jesus is working with. And I think it's important for us to remember, even as we read all of their stumblings, this is the same group of people through whom he's going to launch his mission into the world to the ends of the earth. Like the reason that we're sending friends to India, the reason that you and I know of Jesus today and we can call him Lord is because these 12 men told some people who told some people who told some people who told some people who told us. He's launching a global movement through these ragtag, stumbling all over themselves, 12, right? And these disciples are really helpful for us in this book because they help us understand how does Jesus deal with people like you and me? Because we're a lot like them. They're a lot like us. And so if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, um, number one, I'm really, really glad that you're here. But I also want you to know, please don't make your judgment on Jesus based on what you see in us. (laughs) Please don't make your judgment on Jesus. It's supposed to be ideal if... Um, you know, the people who claim to know Jesus ought to look like Jesus. That's how it's supposed to work. But let me just go ahead and out us now. Let me go and out myself. I'm a hot mess. We're a hot mess. Don't make your judgment on Jesus based on what you see in us. Now, I don't say that to let us off the hook. Well, let's just keep being a hot mess because after all, right? No, I don't say that to let us off the hook, but it does shed quite a light on Jesus when he persists on hanging out with people like us all the time. The more you get to know any one of us in our church, the more unimpressive we become. The only impressive one in this church is the king who's resurrected and who stands to form it. It's the only one. And so where you and I pick up in the narrative today is going to read a lot like a family meeting. It's going to read a lot like a halftime speech where the coach is going to call his team together and remind them what this thing is all about, where this thing is headed. This is an important conversation. In fact, in verse 35, Mark gives us some emphasis here on what's being said. He says, and he sat down. As if to suggest to you and me that what we're about to read isn't a water cooler conversation. This is not a standing meeting. Jesus sat down. And then it says, and he called the 12. Like, this is not a conversation that you're going to yell across the house or yell upstairs. This is a, hey, I'm sitting down. I want you to come around now. And then he said to them. And so what's going to follow, what we're going to talk about today is Jesus is going to unfold this conversation. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the world? What does it mean to be his follower in the world, a disciple? What is it supposed to look like and how can we keep going? 
What does it mean to be a disciple? What is it supposed to look like and how can we keep going? These are big questions. They were big questions then. They're big questions now. And I want to give us a bit of a picture of the whole of the passage we're going to look at today before we dive into the parts because it's important that we see the whole for us to understand its individual movements. So this passage begins with Jesus for the second time telling his disciples that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to rise again. This is the second time he tells them that, and they're still weirded out by it. They still have no idea what to do with it. The first time he tells them is after Peter confesses him to be the Christ, and then he says, okay, now that you guys know who I am and what I've come to do, I've got to tell you how it's going to go down. I'm going to die, but it's not going to end there three days later. And they're like, that can't happen. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You don't suffer. You bring about renewal and revolution. You, you, you don't die. And now once Jesus starts talking about the mission forward, he can't stop talking about the mission forward. We're going to get that multiple more times in this narrative. But this is the second time he brings it up. In fact, verse 32 tells us they didn't understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. I love that line. It's like, hey, he just said something that seems really important but I have no idea what it means. Um, I'm not taking the short straw on this one. You ask him. You ask him. So the conversation moves from there, and they're following along with Jesus, and then they get into this argument. They literally get into this debate. Like, voices are raised, tones are dropped. They're having this debate. Who's the greatest among us? Like, which one of us is the best disciple? Now, here's the irony of this. This comes on the heel of what we talked about last week, where this father brings his demon-possessed boy to them to say, hey, can you, can you help my son who's being oppressed? And they couldn't do it. They absolutely fell on their face in ministry. They failed miserably. Jesus comes and rescues the party, and now they're following after him going, hey, which one of us is actually the greatest? It's like, you guys just failed. You're, none of you are great. In 33, it says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, hey, what were you guys talking about along the way? <laughs> and it says, they kept silent for along the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. They're like, hey, I'm not telling him. Um, he, he won't approve of that conversation, right? And then the disciples from there proceed to find a group of people in the next city they go to that were apparently doing ministry in the name of Jesus and actually pushing back lots of darkness and helping people, ministering to people. But the disciples didn't know this group of people. They'd never met them. And they were a little bit offended by that. We're like, hey, how come you guys are doing ministry with Jesus, in Jesus' name when like, we're his followers, we're with him all the time, and we've never even met you before? How is that working out? And so they told those people to stop. And then they come back to Jesus and they go, hey, we, we like settled a really big fire. Uh, you're not going to have to handle this. We saw a group of people who were ministering in your name, and we had never met them before, and we told them to stop. And Jesus was like, what's wrong with you guys? If they were doing ministry in my name and it was actually pushing people toward the presence of God, then clearly they're rightly aligned with my name. If they're not against us, they're for us. What's wrong with you guys? Why do you think you're the ones who call balls and strikes? Who are you the one to choose? And then from there, Jesus goes on to warn them against the seriousness of sin and causing other people to sin. And the warning, and he warns them with the reality of, of hell. Super chipper conversation to round off with. 
And the sum of all of these moments and what's happening is Jesus is driving them back to the heart of what it means to be his follower, a disciple. And this conversation is really important. He sat down. He called them. He spoke. Why? Because where they go from here, the volume is about to get turned up. The heat is about to get a lot hotter. And they're going to need this conversation. So let's jump in. He talks to them about the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. And then Jesus begins, remember this conversation with his own sufferings, his own sacrifice. And now he turns to the disciples, he turns to you and me, and he says, this is actually how discipleship works in the world. To, me, to be my disciple, it's going to be about my suffering and my sacrifice, but the road is the same for you. The road is the same for you. You're worried about, you're arguing about who among you is the greatest. You're worried about your place in the world. You're worried about what people think of you. You're worried about advancement, success, and achievement. You're worried about self-actualizing and proving the haters to be wrong and living your best life. Don't they sound like us? But then Jesus is trying to remind them, remember what I just said to you like literally a few conversations ago? What good is it if a man gains the whole world? but he forfeits his soul. What good is it? You're arguing about who's the greatest, and yet I'm trying to make sure you don't forfeit your soul. And then he says, remember what I said to you, that to come after me is actually to deny yourself. I mean, it was countercultural when Jesus said it. It's intensely countercultural now. You mean to follow Jesus means that I don't get the final say in my life. And now, if those statements were generic back a couple of chapters ago, in this moment, he gets specific. The cost of discipleship. Pick up in 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter life, eternal life, maimed than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, for it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worms eat them and do not die, for the fire is unquenched, a quotation from the book of Isaiah. Clearly, Jesus believes in judgment. Three times, we're like, hey, is he going to say it again? (laughs) And he says it again. And what he's driving at here is that to be a disciple means that Jesus calls the shots, He declares what's in. He declares what's out. The cost of being a disciple is this. There is a word that governs your life, and it's not yours. What it means to be a disciple is, as we prayed this morning, it's to confess with the global church that Jesus is Lord, which means he gets the final say. Like, what it means to be a Christian is to give your rights over to Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. That he's the one who gets the final verdict. And this is one of those passages that's really difficult because it confronts cultural Christianity, doesn't it? The kind of Christianity where you can say that you believe in God, but it has no real functional effect on your life or formation. Like, this, this confronts that. Like, this says, if you say you believe in God, but functionally it has no effect or formation on your life, then whatever you're doing actually isn't Christianity because this is. And it confronts that. So when there's, there's a desire or when there's a pattern in your life that comes into conflict with what Jesus teaches, 
the question of discipleship is who wins. When there's a desire you have or a pattern of your life that is in conflict with what Jesus teaches, who wins? Well, Jesus wins. I, yeah. No, no. Who functionally wins? When that impulse rages, when the hormones grow hot, who wins? What, what Jesus is suggesting is that who wins in that moment, that's the truth serum of who your Lord really is. That's the truth serum. And so what's interesting about this passage is we go, surely he doesn't mean this, right? Like surely like he's just trying to grab our attention by talking crazy. So on the one hand, we can read a passage like this figuratively, like, well, Jesus doesn't mean to like really cut off our hand and our feet and pluck out our eye. Like that's, that's figurative. And so we'll read it figuratively, but the problem with reading it figuratively is that we'll take it so metaphorically that we bypass any accountability by it. Well, he doesn't mean that. Or on the other hand, we'll read it literally, like he literally means this, and then we'll go, but that's crazy. I'm not actually going to do that. And so even reading it literally is no real help because then you go, Surely it can't mean that. They land in the same spot. But both readings bypass the heart-level call of Jesus to obedience. Bonhoeffer says it this way. The fact that we receive no answer to the question, figurative or literal, only makes this commandment even more unescapable. <laughs> like, you've got to do something with it. You've you got to do something with it. What's interesting about this is you would assume that Jesus is going to come back around and go, hey, I'm going to soften that. Here's what I really meant. He actually doesn't do that. He just lets it sit there. He just lets it sit there. A few years ago, I lived in Austin, Texas, and I did some college ministry at University of Texas. And um, <laughs> I was just seeing if it'd work again. Yeah, there you go, the hiss, the Aggie hiss. Those tea sips, good grief. Um, anyway, I, I did some college ministry there, and uh, I had a guy in our ministry come and, and just say, um, he's reaching out for help. He was like, man, I'm being wrecked by, I'm being wrecked by porn, and it's, it's affecting the way I think about myself. It's affecting the way I think about people. My faith is on the brink, and I, I, need, I need help. I want to follow Jesus. And so we, we talked about that, and, and I was so proud of him just for naming it and, like, walking that into the light. And, and um we actually turned to a passage of scripture like this, and I said, hey, listen, to fight sexual sin is literally a dogfight. It's a dogfight. It's not going to go fast. It's not going to go away easy. Um, but we confess Jesus to be true. And so we opened up a passage like this, but the book from, from Matthew, Matthew's version of this same passage. And I said, are you willing to, to do whatever it takes to root this out? And he said, yes, we'll do whatever it takes. And I said, like, where's the outlet for you? And he's like, my phone. And I said, well, would you be willing to, to trade in your smartphone? Like, they actually still make phones that only make calls. <laughs> you know? And, and uh, would you be willing to trade in your smartphone for a phone like that? And he goes, what am I going to do about my email? There it is, isn't it? There's the teaching. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to follow you, Jesus. I just got to get my email. That's it. Hey, listen, man, you can get your email. I'm worried about your soul before the presence of the living God. 
it might be more difficult, but you can get your email. This doesn't mean that you and I won't have wayward or tempting impulses. I have them, you have them, we all have them all the time. The question isn't whether or not you'll have them. Jesus doesn't say um, if you have sin. He says when you have sin. It's not if, it's when. The question is not if you've got these impulses or temptations. It's what are you doing with them and where are you being formed? What are you doing with them and where are you being formed? This isn't primarily, and I have to say this in the midst of Bible Belt religion, this is not about morality and just trying harder and doing better next time and managing yourself so that the bad stuff that's inside of you doesn't get out. What's interesting, again, is that Jesus doesn't soften this. And so the central issue is your heart. It's your heart. It's my heart. And there's these ways where you don't know how to answer Jesus here. But then we're led back to the Apostle Peter and his confession when he said something really hard. It's almost as if Jesus, the fact he doesn't soften this, it's almost as if he expects people to walk away after this. And in the same moment with, the, with Peter, there was another hard saying, and he, he was expecting them to walk away, and he says, aren't you going to go? And then Peter says, where else am I going to go? Like, sometimes I actually want to go, but I can't. But I don't want to, but then I want to, but, but where else am I going to go? Because I, I actually believe that you have the words of life. And so what's happening in this conversation is that Jesus is narrowing. He's sitting down. He's calling us close. He's locking eyes to say, the cost of discipleship to be my follower is to say, you win, Jesus. You win. My yes, it's on the table. No matter the cost, count the cost. No matter the cost. The second thing he talks to his disciples about in this conversation is the call of discipleship. Pick up in 35. It says, he sat them down. And he called the 12 and he said to them, if any of you would be first, you're arguing about who's the greatest. You're arguing about who's the best. If you want to be first, you actually must be last and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not only me, but him who sent me. What Jesus is driving at is you guys keep arguing about your place in the world, but the world operates with power dynamics. And that's not how my kingdom works. The world is all about who's right and which side are you on and who's got the power and who's got the authority. This is the heart of the race conversation. This is the heart of the political conversation. This is the heart of the gender conversation. Which side are you on? Which side of history are you on? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to be on the winning side? And Jesus is saying, that's not how my kingdom works. That's not how this is going to go down. This is not a power play. In fact, he goes so far as to say in 42... Whatever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would actually be better for you. If, if, if any of you caused them to sin, it would be better for you if you had a great millstone hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If you're going to use power dynamics to oppress the vulnerable, it would be better for you if you went ahead and judged yourself now than to stand before my father. This is not about power dynamics. This is not about leveraging power in the world. And we read this, and at a sentimental level, we all go, yeah, get him, Jesus. Get us, you know. It sounds warm enough and Oklahoman enough that no one likes a self-absorbed person and self-entitled. Yeah, well, let's be people of the earth and servants. But here's where this like began to convict me. You say everyone's glad to be a servant so long as you get to select your assignment. Hey, I want to be a servant. Okay, here's your job. Well, I didn't sign up for that. 
That's not what I'm doing here. So Jesus is saying, hey, beware of those places in your life where you find yourself strategizing for more power, for more control, for the upper hand, for platform. And isn't it interesting how we'll often say, well, if I had that chair, if I had that place, if I had that leadership, here's what I would do. We make it sound like we would be the most chivalrous people in the world as though, you know, the world's been finally waiting for us. But isn't it interesting that often what's happening at the heart level when we're clamoring for power and control is that we just want to be at the top so we can say we're there. And Jesus is saying, beware. Remember, he's going to say in a couple of chapters, the Son of Man didn't come to be served. He came to serve and offer his life. This, this is what God came to do. If, if God came not to be served but to serve, then how much more Will this be true of those who say I'm his disciple? So I want to give you just a couple of questions as to like, what does this look like to functionally practice this, to follow Jesus here? In your marriage, if, if you're married, what would it look like if you thought of your spouse first? And like we're a young church, so like the young married in the room are like, I always think of my spouse first. I always think of you, baby. The veterans are like, man, that's difficult. <laughs> for better or for worse, right? For worse. Um, hey, in your marriage, though, the, the idea of following, it, we need to follow Jesus in the most close, practical areas if we're going to follow him when it gets more difficult. And so even in your marriage, what if you didn't consider yourself a spouse first, but first a disciple and let your discipleship then form how you're a spouse. To be great is to be a servant of all. Maybe we'll apply it to friendship. How would this change the way you operate in your friendships? What if you first didn't think of yourself as a friend, but as a disciple, and you roll into those friendships saying, how does my discipleship to Jesus inform how I'm a friend to this person? or community groups, that you're not primarily a participant or someone showing up in order to have all of your needs met, but you're a disciple that's come to bring yourself to bear on whatever would be good for this group. The one that I thought through as I was trying to navigate my own chest and my own life with this, I thought, hey, if I took Jesus seriously here, how would this change the way I saw the city? How would this change the way I saw my neighborhood, my street, my neighbors? We, we live in an amazing city. If you're new to Oklahoma City, welcome to the greatest city in the world. <laughs> it's an amazing place to consume, but that's not the life of a disciple, primarily. And so it's like, hey, what if you saw yourself not primarily as a resident, where you live is not where you live because you need somewhere to live. Where you live is where you live because God gave you a place to live and you're a disciple and now you're there. What does that look like in how you see your street, your neighbors, the city? This is the cost of discipleship. It's the call of discipleship. But he ends here with the way of discipleship. This section ends with 49 and 50. Pick up there with me. For everyone will be salted with fire, and salt is good, but if, it's lost its salt, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. <laughs> this, 
this is a really frustrating passage to try to interpret along this, along this way. Because this is like, so we're talking about salt now? Like, I don't, like, what was happening here? Like, this feels like a total, like, samurai moment where you're like, what just happened? Um, in verse 49, he says, everyone will be salted with fire. Track with this. This comes right on the heels of what he said was our urgency to fight against sin, against the backdrop of fire and judgment. That sin is a big deal because there actually is a judgment. And this isn't a reference to fire as judgment, but this now is a new reference to fire, keeping with that metaphor as refinement and as purification. In the Old Testament, they would have these sacrifices and they would salt them so they wouldn't decay and they would preserve and Jesus wants his disciples to know that the road of discipleship is going to be marked with suffering. The road of discipleship will be marked often with sorrows. It's that way for Jesus. Why would we think it would be different for us? And one of the ways that he wants us to know that God will keep us, God will preserve us, God will purify us is through fiery trials. Jesus wants us to know this. He wants us to know that God will use our sorrows and sufferings to form us and to burn off the things that are contrary to him. So there's a couple of passages I want to show you in the New Testament. First Peter 1, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you're grieved by various trials. And we're like, yes, they keep coming. And why is that happening? Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, in the midst of the trials, the faith keeps going your faith is more precious than gold that perishes as though tested by fire and it may be found as the result of praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So that God is using the trials, the sorrows, the sufferings to actually form the genuineness of faith. And in 1 Peter 4.12, I love this one. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And we're always surprised. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We always think, why is this happening and where is God as though something strange is happening to us? And he says, no, no, that's not, no. The road of discipleship, the way of discipleship will be marked with sorrows and sufferings. It was that way for our Lord. God didn't abandon him and neither will he you. And so I offer that today like not... I thought about so many of you and where you are and the things that you're actually walking in. And this is not what you want to hear. But what's beautiful is that Jesus is at least honest with us. Is that following him doesn't give us a get out of suffering free card. But that in following him, what's happening is he wants you to say like the trials, God won't abandon you even when it feels like he has. It sure felt to Jesus like he had been abandoned when he was in the tomb for two days. Only to find out that the father was there all along and resurrecting him to better and new life on the third day. And so he turns to verse 50 with one final word. He says, so now I want you to have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And here's the point. That faithfulness as a disciple, they've had this argument about who's the greatest. And he's like, hey guys... The mark of your discipleship will not be your greatness in the world. The mark of your discipleship will not be your platform and your recognition. Faithfulness as a disciple will be measured by your saltiness. And what he's talking about is their attachment to Jesus. 
Remember another place of scripture, he says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And it's not because we're super salty and bringing flavor to the world. It's not because we're super bright. No, but he is. He changes the world. He's salty. He's bright. And as we're attached to him, we will become so. That's the idea. And these words would have certainly triggered them back to that first moment Jesus called them to be disciples. Remember back in Mark chapter 3 when he called the twelve? The first point of discipleship isn't what you produce. The first point of being a follower of Jesus is not what you'll do or who you'll become. The first point of being a disciple of Jesus for these guys and for us, it says in Mark 3, was to be with Jesus. Discipleship is primarily about your attachment to Jesus. Not what you do, not what you become. And so Jesus wants us to know that the way of discipleship will be marked by trials outside of us. The way of discipleship will be marked by the fight of sin inside of us in service to the world. But there's not a single bit of that that is meant to be done apart from Jesus. And so what a chipper passage, right? But remember how this passage begins. And here's the landing today. This passage begins with Jesus talking about his own sufferings to come. And he even says there, I'm going to die at the hands of sinful men, but I will rise again, he says. And i got to be honest with you as we land today that, like, I need to hear Jesus say that. Because in these days, like, even in my prayers, like, I find myself commonly asking, is it worth it? Is, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth the difficulty? Is it worth the cost of handing over the verdict on my life? Is it worth it to, to keep serving even though the world says I don't want to be served by you? Is it, is it worth it to have a road marked with suffering and trials? Is it worth it? But when Jesus says it's not going to end in death at the hands of sinful men, I will rise again, he means for us there's coming a day when the voice that you have submitted to is actually going to have a face. And you'll see him eye to eye, voice to voice. And on the day when you stand before your king, when you stand before your Lord, the cost of discipleship will not feel so costly. He's worth it. When you stand before your king, when you stand before your Lord, the call of discipleship, the fact that what, what business do I have being a disciple? <laughs> to serve, I'll do whatever you want. And then that road marked with suffering, man, tears and all. And on that day when you see his face will be like light and momentary afflictions because now there's trillions of years of uninterrupted presence when his face lights up the new creation. It's worth it. And so even though it feels like now you're, as the scriptures say, walking through the valley of the shadow of death, the road of discipleship, you will fear no evil because he's with you. He's with you. Jesus, thank you for your word today. 
And I really am asking that you would help us have an increased capacity to submit to you, that you really will give us an increased capacity to say yes to you. Father, would you help us again this week consider the cost of discipleship, the call, and the way. Jesus, thank you that you're at least honest with us to tell us that trials will come, but that you've overcome the world. And so help us practice even now. We want to together as a congregation say yes to Jesus. Yes, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.